The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Papa raised everything that we ate, even to cows, hogs, chickens. And he uh, raised corn that we could make cornmeal out of bread. And everything else, he didn't have to go to the store and buy too many. He raised the potatoes, two kinds, greens, beans, cabbage, everything. You're listening to the words of Minnie Whitney from Accomack County, Virginia, who was born in 1902. Like many Black farmers during the turn of the century, her parents were sharecroppers, which was a system that provided work for poor farmers. Because, see, my father was a, he, he was a good sharecropper. And the children that come up with those parents that had farm, you didn't know too much about hard times, you know, like for food and clothes, because two things my father always made his mind to do. He was going to feed us and give us some clothes on the back, even if it was something was left over from somebody else that my mother would fix. But uh, I see so many there was, was rougher than I was. But my father always kept hogs and kept a cow for milk, and he had horses to truck the farm. But sharecropping was also a system that gave landowners the power to exploit the labor of free Black people. It was a system forced upon them after the promises of emancipation were taken back, whether by government policy, systemic racism, or bigotry. You see... Ever since there's been an America, there's been Black farming. And like most things in this country, African Americans have a long and very complicated history with it. You see, my father, his mother and father both were slaves. And my mother, his father and mother both were slaves. You know, it was a rule they say that they, whatever the white man would tell them, they believed him. And if he says, well, you didn't earn but $5, this year, they believed him. See, they someone was still living under the bondage of slavery. I'm Deb Freeman. I'm a writer that focuses on African-American foodways and the impact those foodways have on how we cook and eat today. In our last episode, we explored the mass movement of African-Americans away from the South during the Great Migration and how that movement spread African-American cuisine across the country. For this episode, we're tracing things back even further to the root of all foodways, the farm. I grew up in a city and never really gave farming any thought. As I began to write about food and learning more about the history of where dishes came from, I began to think about ingredients, which of course led to thinking about farming and more specifically about why there were so few black farmers. 
I came across an article in the Virginian Pilot that talked about SeaTac, one of the oldest African-American communities in the United States. It's located at the oceanfront in Virginia Beach, and in the late 1700s and early 1800s, African-Americans settled the land and created farms. The community raised its own funds to create a schoolhouse and even a volunteer fire station, which at the time was the only all-Black volunteer fire company in existence. Today, the self-sustaining farms have been paved over by a convention center, asphalt, and storage units, and few homes still exist. This is an area that's about 20 minutes from where I grew up, and my daughter graduated high school in the very same spot where a thriving community once stood. Development erased much of this community's history, but I started to wonder what other factors contributed to the declining numbers of Black farmers. Over the last century, the number of farmers who identify as Black or mixed race has gone down from 14% of the industry to just 1.4%. That's a drop of over a million Black farmers to about 40,000. This number is insane to me because you can't have a conversation about American agriculture without acknowledging the contribution of Black people. Since the moment we first landed on this continent, African-Americans have had a complicated relationship with agriculture. For centuries, enslaved people provided the labor that powered the rapid growth of the United States, and nowhere was our labor more valuable than in the plantations of the South, where enslaved African-Americans were so important to the production of cash crops that this country went to war with itself to preserve its way of life. The importance of African-Americans in America's agriculture industry is significant. That's Dr. Valerie Grimm, professor of African-American and African diaspora studies at Indiana University in Bloomington. Ever since that been in America, African-Americans have been a part of that production. So they were here. They came work in the fields in 1619. They were enslaved between 1640 and 1680. And they worked as slave laborers in the fields until slavery ended. And then when Reconstruction failed, they ended up in the fields again. And so everywhere there has been agriculture in America, you will find Black people involved in it whether it was in the northern states, the southern states, the eastern states, or the western or midwestern states. You would find African Americans. I called up Dr. Grimm to ask her to provide some historical context between African Americans, American agriculture, and the legacy of slavery that permeates the farming industry, even today. So let's go back to the end of the Civil War. It was the summer of 1865. Confederate General Robert E. Lee had just surrendered a few months earlier, and around that time, General William T. Sherman, infamous for his scorched-earth policies as he marched his army through Georgia and the Carolinas, issued Special Field Order No. 15, which temporarily granted 400,000 acres 
of confiscated land along the Atlantic coast of Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida. This land would go to the newly freed families living in that area, promising each family 40 acres and a mule. This gave hope to millions of Black people across the South, eager for a fresh start in a country that for once seemed like it might belong to them as well. But when President Andrew Johnson was sworn in after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, he ordered that land seized by the federal government during the Civil War be returned to Southern owners, who agreed to take a loyalty oath to the Union. And just like that, the status quo was reestablished. However, the end of slavery left Southern owners with a problem. Although they regained their land, now they needed to figure out how to hire people to work in the fields. Originally, these work agreements were meant to be handled by a new federal agency, the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, commonly known as the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau was established in 1865. One of its responsibilities was to help the free people in their transition from slavery to freedom. Well, one of those areas of life involved work and employment. And so the Freedmen's Bureau job was to make sure that when Blacks went to work for their former masters, that there would be labor contracts that stipulated what the master was supposed to do or the new land law, which is what they were called in the New South, and what the free people were supposed to do. And they were to establish the wage contracts, sometimes $10 a month, sometimes $15 a month. Since the majority of formerly enslaved people were illiterate, the Bureau helped them in many ways, including teaching, reading, and writing, helping with contract negotiations, and being a legal advocate in court. Unfortunately, up until its closing 12 years later in 1872, the Freedmen's Bureau was never fully supported by the federal government. President Johnson himself felt that it infringed on states' rights and that the federal government shouldn't provide aid for newly freed enslaved people if poor white people weren't offered help as well. Former slave owners who are now the landlord running the plantations as farm estates decided it was too expensive. It was too expensive and it gave blacks too much power to decide where they were going to work and for whom they was going to work. And so many of those contracts were not honored. And the freedmen made protest of that to the Freedom Bureau agents, but there were not enough agents of the Freedom Bureau to really address these issues adequately. So as a result of that, that free wage system failed because the contracts were not honored. The former plantation owner would say they didn't do their part, so I'm not paying them. And then the blacks would say, some of them, they never paid us, so I'm not continuing to work. But when they took the position that they were not going to continue to work, living with the reality that you were poor, you had no money, you had nowhere to go, no house to stay in, no job to go to, no food to eat, survival meant that you had to do something. And so this idea of sharecropping came up. Sharecropping is an arrangement where a landowner allows a tenant to use their land in return for a share of the crops produced on that land. So how does sharecropping work? It's called sharecropping because it happened on shares. For example, I could work for a former slave owner who said, well, 
In slavery, you and your family worked these 10 acres as slaves, but now we're working on shares in a, let's say, 75 to 25% arrangement. What this meant was that my family and I would contribute the labor and the overhead cost of the production and harvest would be paid for by the landlord now, which is still the same people, but under a different name. And what happens there is that the Black families contribute the labor and the cost of production was taken out of the profits, right? And so whatever is left, let's say you got $100 left, I was supposed to get 25 and the landlord would get 75 A sharecropper differs from a tenant farmer in one key way. The landlord of a sharecropper provides the means of production, such as the tools, work animals, seed, and housing. Which on paper, that sounds like a great deal, right? A skilled farm worker can work a plot of land and grow crops even with limited access to capital for a share of the profits. Unfortunately, this gave many Southern landowners a massive amount of economic power over their sharecroppers, which they often exploited. The experience was this, that every time at the end of the harvest season, during the period what they call settlement, that is when you clear the accounts to see what the cost of production was and to see who gets what, the landlord always said it's a deficit. So they continue to manufacture debt and continued to say things were old so that they could keep labor in place. It became another way of forcing labor and forging laborious relationships so that they wouldn't have to go out and find workers. And that's how sharecropping came into existence because the contract labor system failed. There were no 40 acres in a mule. And if you didn't have any resources, and there wasn't a group of you who could put your monies together like some people did and buy a farm together, then you had to go back into those situations, working for the same people for whom you had been a slave. And that sharecropping system just became a new form of slavery because it was ridden with manufactured debt. I guess when they say sharecroppers, whoever you work for, they had you through the summer while your crop was on. Then at the end of the year, you didn't pay for nothing then, but when you finished reaping your crop, then they went to town and they sit down with the book and figure out how much you owe here and how much you pay there. Then that's the way they, they was shared. They got they give them so much and that's it. What could they do? And sometimes I'm sure they didn't give them what they really should have given. But we manage. Then once these new plantation owners said you owe money, they also worked with the state government to write laws to keep you in place. So then they would pass crop liens laws, they would have peon laws, they would have vagrancy laws. All of those laws were meant to control black bodies and to control black laborers. And with the crop lien laws, you couldn't move if the landlord said you owed him $2. Your whole family had to stay there, work another season, hoping to get that $2 to pay you off. Now, some people slipped away in the middle of the night to urban spaces like Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, but many people were just trapped. And when that system did not deliver enough laborers, the landlords contract with the prison 
to create something called a convict lease system. And what the prison did was work with the police to create a mass incarceration situation. So in between 1870, let's say 1910, particularly in a state like Mississippi, you would find young boys, eight, nine years old, being given life sentences for stealing a sandwich, for stealing a hat, or something was alleged against them. And as a result of that, the plantation owners would make a contract with the prison to get the prisoners out of the jail, make them work the planter's field, and then take them back to jail in the evening. And so labor was locked in through system of legal laws that made it possible for those planters to control Black bodies, to control Black families, and to do many things to deny Black people movement and access. The legacy of slavery in the form of economic and physical threats would eventually lead to events like the Great Migration, driving African Americans away from farming and land ownership. But these are just a few of the reasons why there aren't many Black farmers. To get to the core of the problem, we have to take a look at the systemic racism that was built into government institutions as policies. To learn more about the policies that led to the decline of Black farmers, I spoke with a policy expert. My name is Alora Spate, and I am the executive director of the Socially Disadvantaged Farmers and Ranchers Policy Research Center located at Alcorn State University in Lorman, Mississippi. So the mission then of the Policy Center is to conduct research, analyze policy, and make recommendations seeking to achieve equitable, and I'm going to underscore equitable, and economic integration of USDA programs and policies for socially disadvantaged farmers, ranchers, communities, and rural landowners. And the reason I underscore is equitable, and there's a big difference between equitable and equal. So if you're up here and I'm down here, and you give us equal services, I will never catch up. So the objective should be to make it equitable. And so that's all we're asking for is equity for these various minority farmers. The Policy Center was established through the 2014 Farm Bill, and it serves as proof of how federal policies affect the farming industry. In a way, the center has been authorized to advocate on behalf of socially disadvantaged farmers to shape future policies. I have to date in the six years now that the Policy Center has been operational, talked to over 5,000 farmers one-on-one, if you will, or in focus groups. And after a while, there are general themes, if you will. You really hear the same stories over and over again. The only thing that's changed is the name. You know, how they lost their land, how they thought that Pickford was going to help. That didn't save a lot of farmers. There were a number of, especially Black farmers, that were a little hopeful this time. That They were cautiously optimistic when they heard about this debt relief. What happened? It was shut down. And so they tell story after stories 
about how their ancestors or those that are old enough to have lived through it tells the story of the injustices and what's happening. And if they go into USDA offices and they're treated differently, even today. And one of the things that I will share, a the source of a lot of those injustices at USDA are the USDA Farm Service Agency, FSA, the county committees. So the problem is at the local level, because these county committees, if you will, who are not federal employees, they are elected in the community and there is a history. And, you know, a hundred some years ago, they probably served a useful purpose. So we think then that they have probably outlived their usefulness because that is the source of a lot of discrimination because the good old board network is alive and well, and they're making decisions then these local county committees who gets the FSA program dollars, if you will, and the resources there. That's who's making the decisions. And so if I'm on this county committee, I was elected, I'm going to make sure my farm, my cousin's farm, my brother's son, all of them are going to, if there's money to be had, they're going to get it first. And so by the time you get to the minority firm, up, we ran out of money. The USDA has been the source of a lot of the discrimination that Black farmers have received since its founding in 1862. And all of that came to a head in the 1999 class action lawsuit, Pigford v. Glickman, one of the largest civil rights settlements to date. The lawsuit was filed by Timothy Pigford, who was joined by 400 additional Black farmer plaintiffs against then-Secretary of Agriculture Dan Glickman. The lawsuit was settled in favor of Pigford and the Black farmers who filed discrimination complaints against the USDA between 1977 and 1983. No one should be surprised that the process to file for payments did not have adequate support, and there was a ton of red tape, with about 70,000 claimants being denied on account of missing the filing deadline. A provision was passed in the 2008 Farm Bill to allow these late claims to be heard. And in 2010, Congress appropriated an additional $1.2 billion for the settlement of these new claims, now known as Pigford II. Since Pigford, there has been some improvement in accountability, including the creation of the policy center that Eloris now heads, but we still haven't achieved equity. For example, take a look at how this is playing out today around the American Rescue Plan. The American Relief Act, a part of the American Rescue Plan, authorized the American Relief for Farmers of Color Act. And that law, if you will, was intended then to really fix an injustice. So it started out in the Justice for Black Farmers Act, and then it was changed to Farmers of Color. And it included debt relief for farmers of color. And it is now on hold. There's an injunction has stopped it. There was $4 billion that were set aside by Congress then to, and it was really to fix injustices. 
The injustices she's speaking of are the century and a half of discriminatory practices of the USDA, along with the uneven distribution of resources from policies like the Homestead Acts of 1862 and 1866. So why has it been put on hold? So now you have several white farmer groups that have stood up and alleged, oh, discrimination. Where were they when their ancestors and all of this was receiving and no black farmers then was receiving? In fact, the land was stolen, if you will, from Native Americans and then blacks then were enslaved And so it was free labor. So they got the land and then free labor. So the American Rescue, or that one component of American Rescue Plan, was an attempt to fix the injustices, if you will. So that's where we find ourselves now. With the promised debt relief on hold, and Black farmers left holding the bag, and white farmers now accusing the USDA of unfair discrimination against them based solely on their race, even though the bill itself was already compromised. I'll tell you now, the white farmers, through the white farmer lawsuits, have shut down the debt relief for farmers of colors. But even if it had moved forward, only 8% of Blacks would have received debt relief or debt forgiveness. And so what I'm going to say to that, think while you're thinking about that, (laughs) in order to receive debt relief, you have to have been given debt. To put that in perspective, in order to receive any federal debt relief, you had to be approved for a loan from the USDA's FSA the very agency that was sued for discriminatory practices against people of color and specifically Black farmers. And this data came from USDA as well. 47% of those that they were prepared to, before the injunction, to forgive the debt, if you will, 47% were Native Americans. 27% were Latinos. So 18% of that total then represent Black farmers. But so when you look at that 18%, that represents 8% of the total, you know, 30-some thousand Black farmers. That's not even going to do it. So even if you do it, don't get me wrong, that would be a step in the right direction. But there are other things that need to be done. Public policy and legislation is a complicated knot of semantics and posturing. But the policies that emerge have immense effects on regular citizens like you and me. I asked Dolores if there's anything she thinks the government should be doing to fix these inadequacies. I think we have to stop grouping all socially disadvantaged, all minorities, because the experiences of all minorities are not the same. And I'll give you one specific example. In 1990 was when the term socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers was first developed. And it was strictly race-based. Subsequent farm bills 
There were some, again, said, well, okay, why are white females excluded? They should be included. So white females were included. So Jackson State University in Mississippi actually did a research study under the guidance of the Policy Center. And they looked at then 2014 versus 2017 had, in fact, services to socially disadvantaged farmers improved. And what they found is if you looked at the totals, absolutely, there was an increase of services to socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers in between those two farm bills. Now, when you broke it down, the group that benefited the most was white females. The group where there was no increase, in fact, decline, was black farmers. So the first thing is to separate into individual categories then. The history is very different. The needs are very different. There may be some cases where they need the same thing and by all means, give it to everybody that needs it. But again, break it down. So we've learned about the history of discrimination and the government policies that have helped and hindered Black farmers. But there's another major reason why the number of Black farmers have declined. Heirs' property, which refers to the land and assets that pass from generation to generation. To talk more about heirs' property, I'm talking to someone who's done a lot of thinking and writing about Black land ownership. My name is Natalie Bazil. I am an author, a novelist, and nonfiction writer, and I'm calling in from San Francisco, California. Natalie is the author of Queen Sugar, a novel about three siblings who inherit a sugarcane farm in rural Louisiana from their father. The book was adapted into a critically acclaimed television series by Ava DuVernay and Oprah Winfrey, and it is must-see TV. I've seen every episode and I'm obsessed with knowing what's going on with Ralph Angel, Aunt Vi, Charlie, and Nova. She also recently released a book called We Are Each Other's Harvest, an anthology with essays, poems, photographs, and first-person stories that explore the connection that Black people have to farming. I have kind of an abiding love for the stories of Black farmers. I think When you look at the history of Black people in this country, the long and complicated history of Black people in land, Black people in agriculture, I really felt that there was still something to be explored. Natalie has been a champion of the stories of Black farmers for a while now, and I wanted to get her insight on how heirs' property has affected Black land ownership. Black farmers, Black people have not always either had access to the information or the possibility. And in some instances, they have been highly suspicious of institutions. So when you think about heirs' property, it's this idea that let's go back 100 years and your great-great-grandfather owned land. Well, he did not necessarily know to put that land in a trust or to have an estate that would protect that asset going forward. 
And so many Black people, when that first generation of landowners, farmers passed on, when their heirs inherited that property, first of all, there was no entity like a will or a trust to protect that land. But then more importantly, when it was passed down from the first generation to the second, that land was often divided, right, among the siblings or cousins, whatever. You go down to the next generation and that land that has now been divided maybe among four siblings is now passed down to the next generation and now it's divided among the cousins. And so as you go through the generations, you have land that is in families, but it has been divided and subdivided and subdivided amongst all of these relatives in a family. Oftentimes, some of those family members moved away from that original homestead. They still had ownership of that. They still owned their portion of the land. But because there was no will or trust to protect it, it became a muddy situation where the ownership was not necessarily clear. There were title issues. But more importantly, when that land was owned by multiple family members, it made ownership very tenuous and it opened up those families to opportunities to be exploited. Because oftentimes, when that land was owned by a large family, all it took was for one member of that family to decide that they wanted to sell their portion, right? They wanted to sell their three acres. And oftentimes, that land was in places that turned out to be very valuable. There were two brothers in Georgia or South Carolina along the coast whose family had managed to hold on to their land. When they first acquired this land, it was not necessarily valuable. But over time, it has become valuable because now it's right along the coast of Georgia or the coast of South Carolina, right? This is now beachfront property that this family has managed to hold on to. Well, developers who want to make golf courses and resorts understood that this family was sitting on valuable land. And all they had to do was go and identify one family member who was willing to sell their portion. And that often forced the sale of all of the land. And if the family members did not have enough money to pay the taxes as the property was reassessed, and all of a sudden they're sitting on land that is worth millions of dollars and they can't pay the taxes, well, they're vulnerable. And these developers can then come in and force the sale of that land because the family can't pay the taxes. Speculators have come in and they have exploited that murkiness to their benefit. And these families are left in situations where they often lose land that they have managed to hold on to for generations because they have that one family member who decides to sell and that triggers this kind of domino effect that forces the sale of that land. And heirs' property is the second highest reason why Black people have lost land in this country. The first is the USDA and their discriminatory practices. But the second is this issue of heirs' property and Black people not being able to protect what they have tried to hold on to in their families for generations. Black farming is important, 
because black farming represents ownership and self-determination. Going back to SeaTac, I imagine how proud the people in that community must have been to provide for themselves and their families, to build infrastructure, and to build a school, to be able to live life on their terms. There's a freedom in that, and it must have been satisfying to have agency over their lives, if only for a moment. Land is power. Land is access. Land is opportunity. It has been that from the founding of this country. It is that today. And when we think about the fact that Black people, as a people, we understood that, right? Going all the way back to emancipation and the conversation that Garrison Frazier had as the Civil War was being won by the Union soldiers and General Sherman dispatched William Stanton, his Secretary of War, to talk to Black ministers about what are we going to do with all these newly emancipated, formerly enslaved people? And Garrison Frazier was the spokesman. He was a minister. And he stood up and he spoke for the group. And he said, essentially, give us land that we can till by our own hand. And I'm paraphrasing here. But you think about the fact that formerly enslaved people, Black people understood what having land meant. It meant sovereignty. It meant being able to take care of their families. It meant being able to feed themselves. It meant being able to vote. Farmers were often kind of the most prestigious people in their communities. They were the people who gave the land for the schools or for the churches. So this connection that Black people had with land, we understood what that meant. And so going forward, to think about all the ways that we were then barred from having access, barred from those opportunities, barred from owning land that we could pass down through the generations. It was just so infuriating for me to think that that history had been erased, that information had been erased, because I think a lot of times in the current cultural conversation, when people look at everything from Black people's health to our lack of wealth, a lot of those issues that our community is struggling with now can be traced back to land and not having access to that, not being able to pass that land down through generations. I mean, there are just so many issues there that are tied to how this country works, what this country values. And Black people have not been part of that experience. We've talked a lot about the many, many ways that Black farmers have been given a raw deal. But this isn't a lost cause. Black farmers are still fighting every day to take ownership of the future that was promised to us. Recently, there's been a trend of younger African-Americans returning to the land. We asked Nally what she thought about this new generation of young Black farmers. Well, I think it's exciting. I think the reason why I am so heartened by these stories of young people who are returning to the land, who understand what land means. First of all, I think they are approaching this with a kind of determination and vision and a real energy and an activism that I find encouraging, that I find very inspiring, actually. And I also appreciate the fact that in a time when the whole world has come through this pandemic, and I remember those early days of 2020 when we're all scrambling around looking for 
food on the shelves and, you know, you go into a Trader Joe's or a whatever your local grocery store and the shelves are bare. That was a very unnerving feeling. And I know that that was an experience that we all went through at the same time. And really, I think it forced us to really examine our dependence on these larger structures that we might not necessarily be able to count on in the future. And so I think as a culture, people really began to question their dependence, let alone how the food is grown, where it's grown, what's on it, you know, all those questions. But I think it was a wake-up call to people. And so now to think that there is a renewed interest in farming and agriculture, especially for young black and brown people, that is encouraging to me. On the next episode of Setting the Table, we'll be talking to a few people who are a part of the next generation of black farmers. But until then, I'm Deb Freeman, and thanks for listening to Setting the Table. I want to thank my guests, Valerie Grimm, professor of African-American and African Diaspora Studies at Indiana University, Eloris Spate, director of the Socially Disadvantaged Farmers and Ranchers Policy Research Center at Alcorn University, and Natalie Bazil, author of Queen Sugar and We Are Each Other's Harvest, celebrating African-American farmers' land and legacy, available at booksellers everywhere. Archival audio used in this episode was provided by the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History at the University of Kentucky. Saying the Table is part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Setting the Table team, producer Marvin Ya, audio editor Evan Lindsay, researcher Pavan Obasilase, and intern Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Weststone founder Stephen Satterfield, Weststone Radio Collective head of podcasts, Celine Glazier, sound engineer, Max Katelchuk, associate producer, Quentin LeBeau, production assistant, Amalisa Utinko, and sound intern, Simon Lavender. Cover art created by Weststone art director, Alexandra Bowman. Our theme music is Who's Back in Town by Sammy Miller and the Congregation. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com. Until next time, I'm Deb Freeman.